You're listening to Dots, Lines, and Destinations, a travel podcast with host Stephen Seagraves, Fosma Moon, and Seth Miller. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Dots, Lines, and Destinations, Seth hosting this week, and I am joined by the esteemed travel Zork master, Mr. Michael Traeger. Welcome to the show, Michael. Welcome back, I should say. Thank you. I, it's it's a pleasure to be on, because I never really know I'm going to be on, so it's always... Uh... Yeah, I gave you like a half-hour heads up, I feel like, um, but you were kind enough to pour some cocktails here for us in your lovely new flat in London, and... Looks like Leo, the dog, is going to stay quiet enough for us to record. We'll see how that goes. But um, going to be a little loose on structure. And I know that that's scary for people who have listened to the show before who think that that means there has actually ever been structure in the past. But we don't necessarily have a formal list of topics or anything, but sort of want to talk through general things. I mean, I could ask you what you feel about the 737 MAX return to service, but I'm going to guess that you don't have a ton of opinion. No, I, I I don't have a lot of opinion on that at all. I when thought, it returns to ser- know, actually, when it returns to service, will you be comfortable flying on it? Uh, yeah, because I understand risk. Okay. And in the scheme of life risk, that's not really high up there as yeah. far as risk. So I those kind of things don't bother me. That's what I always think is interesting. I think a lot of people don't understand risk, yeah. like the statistical elements of of risk and. You're still more likely to get hit by a, you know, to die getting hit in a car on the way to the airport or whatever other. Right. Yeah. Well, that's what I always like parsing out. Up. Like I ninety three down to Boston Logan is probably way more risky than than anything you'll ever yeah. have flying on any commercial aircraft. So I try to keep that in perspective. How do you feel about triple sevens dumping fuel over uh, schools in eastern Los Angeles? Well. <laughs> <laughs> have, you heard not, this, have you heard the story? Oh, I, I, I totally it. had heard the story and I followed the story. And I was a little bit curious about the, the chain the chain of events. I obviously understand that if it's something that needs to be done because yeah. they have no other choice, that that's the lesser of the evils. Though I'm not, I'm not really sure in this case I, that if that was really true, you know. So I, I saw a little bit, a little bit about that, and yeah. I, I was a little bit curious. Like, what's the perspective on that? Like, yeah. was it absolutely necessary at the point that they did it? Was there something with the jettison or? Yeah. Like the, I, for me, the interesting part is, and it, knowing nothing about actually operating an aircraft, so I will, you know, mm-hmm. I have never been behind. The, the yoke other than once or twice in a very poor version of a simulator usage uh, where we definitely crashed. Uh, what I will say is the pilots were asked if they wanted to dump fuel or if they needed to get to a higher altitude and they came back and there's a recording of this. They said, we're no longer critical. Everything's under control, um, we, but we don't need to dump fuel. And at some point later, it sounds like they did the math again and were like, uh-oh, we've got too much fuel. And they started dumping. And they, for- I don't want to say forgot. They forgot or chose not to tell air traffic control when they started dumping. And while that is almost certainly allowable based on my understanding of the various regulations, which is if they say it has to, if a pilot can basically do anything with an airplane in the sky to make sure that it is safe and gets on the ground safely. So it's probably not illegal. That doesn't mean it's not wrong necessarily. And I don't know for certain, but at some point someone's going to have to ask these pilots. And there's a part of the flight that's not on public frequencies. So there's parts of the conversations that we don't have um, publicly, although someone, I have to assume, is going to go pull those black boxes and pull the voice recorder so we do have it. Someone will have a review of those conversations, but uh, NTSB does ne- never releases the full audio nor the full transcripts. They release bits of the conversation and interpretations thereof. Uh, but I, I think at some point we're going to determine that someone in the cockpit realized 
they in fact had way more fuel than they should for landing and they were already in queue to land and didn't want to risk doing a go around on one engine to gain altitude again and come up with a situation where that second engine could have failed or something else. And thus, they dumped as much fuel as they could during those last minutes and then landed. Well, I think part of this is the perspective of, you know, how you're analyzing a situation and making decisions. Yeah. And, you know, you're making, you know, I, I actually can't imagine, you know, you're, you're looking at all of these different data points and all of this different information. And you think you have a strategy and a plan, which you've put together within the last 30 to 45 mm-hmm. seconds or right. last minute. And now something maybe isn't right about that plan and you want to write it. You know, you want to dump the fuel because you realize, okay, but if we do that, then our weight is fine and, and we can go ahead with this plan. And you're, you're being forced to make a decision, you know, such a critical decision, you know, weighing all of these factors in a very, very limited amount of time. And yeah. I would like to question, you know, when people try to armchair this stuff, you know, like on Twitter, yeah. you know, and they, you know, you think, you know, think what these guys are going through, you know, and think of everything that they're looking at as professionals. Yeah. And they're, you know, to me, I, I try to look at most things in life with good intentions. And I don't think there are any bad intentions here. I think their intentions were that they need to yeah. land the plane safely, <laughs> yeah. safely. And, and, and they're doing what they need to do. And maybe they made a miscalculation. That was a minute ago, right? You know, and now they're doing what they need yeah. to do to, forgot to write. To ca- the- forgot to carry the one. Oh darn! Hang on a second, right? I, I, the only thing that I think I second guess is at some point they did flip a switch to dump fuel, and it sounds like they didn't tell anyone that they were doing that. Whether it was at the whether they were allowed to or not, whether it was mandated, all of those other bits, I will push aside. If they were dumping fuel, it sounds like they probably should have told someone. Um, if nothing else, I think the ATC would have pulled the planes behind. They had already sort of moved most of the other planes out from behind them. But ATC should know so that they don't bring any planes in too close behind them because you don't want the planes behind them getting sprayed with jet fuel. No, that that totally makes sense to me. And, and that's there, just and and that's, maybe there's a reason, but no, I think be that, to see what it is. that's coming down to a like a communication mm-hmm. kind of kind of standard. You know, yeah. I don't think. Uh, I mean, I don't think they intentionally dump the fuel. To you know, I think either they they didn't think okay, about what well, there's, a, there's a school down there. Let's see if we can get them wet. Do you think yeah, that wasn't the conversation yeah. they were having in the flight deck? Yeah, no, I, I don't think so. But it is. I, I did follow that a little bit, and it is interesting to see people's responses uh, yeah. to that. And I think you know this is probably the problem with most things with aviation is that you know, especially the mainstream media tries to way oversimplify what's what's going on yeah, well, a lot of times, and that's, you have to because. No one wants to get into the nuance and detail of what any of these things really encompass. And you have to simplify to some extent. But the question is, do we oversimplify, I guess? Yeah. So no, sure it'll, it'll be interesting. And hey, mistakes mistakes happen. But yeah. I mean, is it a bad mistake? I mean, I, I guess. But is it something that's going to have, you know, enormous repercussions? I don't know. I mean, I, I don't, don't think so. know, you know, and that's, and that's sort of like in the big, you know, in the big picture of what you're looking at. And I think that is, it is really interesting when you, when you think about that kind of thing. And I think that's, you know, getting back to the 737 case and yeah. how much, you know, armchair, you know, aviation experts on this kind of stuff. I mean, I, I will say personally, I, I feel very disappointed by Boeing. Sure. I, I don't, you know, just setting aside, you know, it's it's one of those most things I enter into is, 
you know, I only want to say that I, if, if I believe like, like half of what I've, I've seen is true, then it's bad enough. Yeah. And I think that's one of those situations with Bowie. It's like, okay, if half of the stuff that I've probably read and I've read a decent amount yeah. about it is true, then that's, that's probably, that still makes it bad yeah. enough. No, I've read, I read a lot of the emails that were in last week's release, right? The, like the stuff that they sent to the transportation, uh, committee. And then there's like a hundred pages of emails. I read a lot of them. Uh, and it was a lot of, that was the like, it's a thing designed by monkeys run by clowns or whatever, right? Like those emails. And to an extent, I want to say in a business of 90,000 people, there's always going to be someone who hates the boss and someone who thinks his boss is a clown and someone who doesn't like the way things are going. And is going to say stupid things like that. Not stupid things, say things like that. Um, when it's your chief test pilot, that's more significant when they put it in writing repeatedly, that's more significant. But, um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, there are a lot of bad decisions were made there. Yeah, I think it's that. And that's, and I, I think this is that, that is a perfect example of it's not one or two bad decisions. It's a cascading yeah. selection of, of bad decisions that were made. And, and of course, if you go back and you look, Hey, if we had done some of this right with regards to training and directives and things like that, it would yeah. cost us so much less than what we're going Facing through now. right now. But I think people don't necessarily look at things that way when they're in the in the weeds on those kind of situations. But yeah, there's, is, there's a it, going back to your discussion on risk tolerance and understanding risk, right? Risk management and the calculations on that is all about how much is it going to cost if we're wrong. Mm-hmm. What what are the other options and which one costs the right amount of money? And what are the chances that each of these things hits? And Someone looked at it and said, well, we have a very, very, very small chance that this thing hits this problem, but it will cost us a lot of money and did the math and said, yeah, it probably won't happen. And oops, it happened. Yeah. I, and then it happened again. So, yeah, I've stayed, I've, I've stayed yeah. pretty far away from that issue yeah. because I, I just think it's one of those issues that is so multifaceted that yeah, you like, can't, you know, would, I don't want to. Would training have been enough? Maybe not. Yeah. And I, I think I, I, I'm really cautious yeah. about giving opinions on it because I, I just think it's too complicated to make a quick judgment about. Yeah. But it will be, it will be interesting to see how this changes the culture at Boeing, maybe the culture at the FAA. I mean, this could, I mean, usually if you look at situations historically, you know, these kind of things have, have brought about good cultural changes. Absolutely. Right. Look at, I mean, look at so many planes that had problems. Like, look, DC-10s had huge, uh, a huge number of issues that that had to be dealt with. Mm-hmm. I think L-1011s also had a number of issues uh, when they first... Yeah, even the 787 had the battery problem. That's I mean, right. I mean, the 78... And people still... There's a lot of those, all that rumor stuff about the 787s and the manufacturing and, you know, quality today, standards yeah. and all of that kind of stuff. So, uh, yeah, it's... Yeah. I, w- I will say, I think the aviation industry in general, learns from tragedies and generally moves towards getting better as a result, generally. Um, hopefully this, that hopefully that continues here and they make the right decisions along the way. Sure. Yeah, and even look at the 787s, and you follow this stuff much more than I, uh, you know, look at the issues with the Rolls-Royce engines. Yeah. Right? And I, I mean, I mean, thank God, nothing catastrophic has come out of that, right? But look at this massive... You know, right amount of Sorry, you know yeah. fixes that need to yeah. be needed to be done, and all of this. You know, we still have planes grounded two and a half years on mm-hmm. this summer. There's still going to be planes grounded by Virgin, by uh, Air New Zealand, by Lot mm-hmm. to fix engines. So yeah, so it's uh, it's it's interesting. It's it's complicated stuff. Yeah. 
I mean, I always used to joke uh, with the GE, the GE stuff because they make GE makes such great engines, and I'm always very pro American companies, you know, just because. And I'm always like, wow, could you imagine if you know? I mean, those engines are so good. The technology is so good. They are so reliable. Could you? I mean, imagine if GE made dishwashers that were that good, or refrigerators <laughs> that were that good, you know, to the standard of of you know. Because think about like yeah. how much re- Listen, you know. If you want to pay twelve million dollars per? I will get you a dishwasher at that reliability level. Yeah, because I got to tell you, I've had a lot of problems with GE appliances over the course of my life. But when I get on a plane, I'm like, God, they make really good. They make really good engines. I wish they could, I wish they could figure that out with yeah. their appliances. You're happy when you. Out the window and see that GE ninety hanging on the wing. <laughs> that's right. I mean, that's say okay. Uh-huh. I mean, but it, it is. I, I mean, it's a miracle. It's a miracle yeah. to me, and it's amazing how how these things function so well. I mean, what did it? BA just retired uh, a triple seven this week. G dash Z Z Z Charlie from nineteen ninety five. It was the first. <laughs> you see, I read some of this stuff. Yeah, yeah. It's amazing. <laughs> it's the first seven seven two that they took delivery of. It was the third off the line. Uh, A and B were part of the test program, so that they were delivered later because Boeing had to convert them from test aircraft to commercial deliveries. Um, not first off the line overall manufacturing, but first delivery to BA. Uh, but yeah, they finally. What are we, 25 years later? Retired a triple seven. It was sent off to St. Anthony, St. Athens, something uh-huh. like that. Just up down the road here in London, mm-hmm. or just outside London for scrapping. So. And think how much service, how many flights yeah. that plane, I mean, like 500 million miles or something. I think it's they crazy. Estimated. It's crazy. Whatever the number was yeah. that I read, I was like, this is amazing that we can engineer things yeah. that are so good. <laughs> Even if. Everyone hates those planes yes. <laughs> because as the oldest I have, I have in fact flown on that frame uh, a couple of years ago coming home. I think it was just last year and I got on board. I was like, oh, I'll get the 777. It'll be a nice ride. Those are pretty good. But I was going to Boston and Boston was one of the routes that the uh, the originals were on. And yeah, not good. Very not good. So here, how, here's a prediction thing for you. Let's do a prediction thing. Are you so, predicting or are you querying? I'm querying, uh, but I'm going to have you do the predict. I'm going to query the prediction that you're going to make. Is that what it was? I mean, after after a certain amount of cognac, uh, you can't. We need we out, need man. more cognac. Just spit it out. So what do you think? Not the cognac. What do you think? What do you think BA is going to do with the A380s? Uh, retire them. You think they're they're just going to retire? You don't think? Uh, I mean, there had been some like Has super there been rumors about like that they, they would cheap pick enough? up. Yeah, that they could pick up a couple. So. I, I understand the value proposition of you can get them cheap enough. You've already got the spare parts inventory. You've already got the operations set up around them. You've got plenty of capacity to run them at Heathrow. And there definitely is not going to be a third runway for a long time. So I do see the value in going there and adding a few more to the fleet. At the same time, I think that BA, like many other network carriers, is starting to see some of the frustration slash uh, challenges of competition over flying hubs. And that's Norwegian, even scaling everything back, is flying a lot of point-to-point routes between Europe and North America that typically would carry passengers connecting through Heathrow. Um, and other airlines are as well. And so the idea, right, the, the, the idea behind the 380 and to a slightly lesser extent the 748 was super mega hubs where you have limited number of slots. You have inability to grow other than to upgauge the hell out of everything. But that only works in a sort of in a vacuum of there's not going to be people coming up with ways to fly point to point instead. And so I think the P380 
people overflying to people finding new places, maybe not new places to put hubs proper, but pseudo hubs and other things like that um, are digging into that concept a little bit. You got, I mean, just today I read that Lot wants to buy uh, Condor, which used to be part of Lufthansa a long mm-hmm. time ago and then was part of the Thomas Cook family that obviously went bankrupt late last year. Um, and so, right, if Lot picks them up, it's they could run, you know, a Polish airline running a hub out of Frankfurt. Could it happen? Sure. I mean, that's the EU rules. Let that work now. So, and they get a few more wide bodies and Lot seems to be coming up with interesting, creative ways to use planes and overflying hubs in a lot of cases. They are adding point-to-point service in, a, in smaller markets a couple times a week, not full daily, which is sort of like the Condor way also. It makes some sense. Yeah, no, I think so. I mean, I really do. I, I love flying on the 380, but even in economy, uh, especially upper deck economy, that's such a great ride. But, you know, it's harder and harder and harder to justify growing that way when the hub travel experience isn't growing as fast as I think Airbus thought it would when the decisions were made to build and sell the 380. Well, isn't it also true that the 380 is not particularly the most compelling aircraft for cargo also? Correct. So that also has been a little bit of an issue with the 380 that yeah. you couldn't, you know, make your money, you know, with that split between passengers. Yeah. And it's cargo. vaguely okay as belly cargo, um, but not great. It doesn't have a ton of belly space. It would be terrible as an all freighter because you couldn't put cargo on the upper decks. Um, There's just weird balance problems. But yeah, it's it has the right amount of belly space essentially for either the number of passengers on board checking bags at a, at a normal rate or cargo, but not both. And that makes for challenges. Yeah, I guess it's, you know, I mean, for me, it's like emotional losing planes like the A380 and the 747. I think the 747 becomes more and more emotional yeah. every year because these are just such iconic aircraft and and you know the replacement with the triple seven x's you know isn't gonna cut it you know at least in my little ba world and i think it's but it's probably 350s also you guys still get a curly 350s and we've got 787s and uh but i i still uh i think that's a really i think that's that's a really tough you know that's a really tough thing because it's almost like you built the dream, you know, when you look what Emirates has done with yeah. A380s and other, like, this is like the dream of like what you dream of. And now it seems like that dream's going away and it isn't going to be replaced. And maybe that's a little bit too much of a hug a tree emotional way to look at it. But to me, it's a little bit. No, but I think you raise an interesting. It's a little bit sad because look at the, if you look at the 747s launched in what, 69, and you look, okay, so now we're finally, is it possible? that we're coming to the end of the generation of having these double-decker planes. And that, to me, is a, a, yeah. like sad. Like, well, maybe it's not, like, it, maybe it's a lot logical, but it, to me, that's really sad. And that, that's a good, a good point. I would, you know, the counter to that is Lufthansa 34600 has a downstairs. Uh, Thomas Cook's 330s had a downstairs bathroom. It wasn't seating, but there was bathrooms downstairs. Okay. And Airbus has talked a lot the last couple of years about the ultra long haul or ultra ultra long haul. I keep looking for a different word beyond just ultra long haul. I feel like long haul is up to about 12 hours. Ultra long haul goes to like 16, but 16 to 20 needs and a ludicrous long haul. Um, ludicrous speed go. Uh, needs a different term. But for the ludicrous long haul segment, there's a lot of talk about putting in these containers in the belly that add that second deck, but it's not regular seating. It's somewhere you can go while you're at cruise. Yeah, I don't know. And I don't think it's ever going to happen. But, you know, it's a little bit like, 
you know, in order to make it like bougie posh, it's got to be the upper deck. <laughs> well, it's it's sort of you know, it's like it's like for pretty, be in the penthouse. I it's like it. for Pretty Woman, right? Yeah, it's yeah. like why do you like? I'm afraid of heights. Why do you stay in the penthouse? Because because it's, it's upstairs. It's, it's upstairs. You right. know, I mean, you know, but it's no, the I, nicest room. It's just it's unfortunate. But I also upstairs. wonder if a lot of those concepts are really you know something's going to happen. How about another thing to throw out at you, which is which has always been interesting to me. What do you think? Of the chance of any of the ME three getting additional fifth freedom, uh, fifth freedom rights to this point, to the states specifically, or yeah, or look, you can keep it. You know, I always say like I, and of course we know it'll never happen, but especially on on dense, you know, high revenue routes like JFK London, could you imagine if Emirates could fly JFK London, and and that would be perfect for their three eighties, just because. Of, you know, of the route, or, okay, JFK, uh, LA London. L- yeah, London Heathrow LAX. Yeah, so you- JFK, I bet the others could fend them off just from frequencies. Yeah. Um, it's routes with a few, with fewer frequencies where Emirates might be able to come in and win a little. Um, there, I think there, con- you know, the ME3 airlines, you still read announcements from time to time about how they are securing additional, um, Routes. They're securing additional freedoms and con- uh, what's the word? Bilaterals. All right. They're they're getting additional services. So, but it's with very small countries where they're never going to fly anyways. So it's mostly around code shares. Um, dude, you spilled it. You think you're finishing the bottle and then you spilled a little bit. Like, come on. We finished a bottle of Remy XM. Well, not the whole bottle. <laughs> yeah, it, it was mostly empty when we started. <laughs> yeah. But so I, I do think. Um, there's a chance um, that they'll continue to sign some of those uh, deals, but it's not going to be to places where they're going to fly their own metal. So it's more code share related. Um, but I don't know. It's I do think that in a lot of ways, the there's countries that are realizing that deals signed by the ME3 20, 30 years ago for open skies, just because like, who cares? It's like just this little airline called Emirates that no one ever knew are now coming back to haunt them in a way where it's tough. The, Passengers probably win. They get more routes. They get opportunities to fly more places, and that's good. But it's not good for the local airline. And is it good for the local tourism at the expense of the local airline or in support of the local airline? There's some really, really challenging math to decide which is better. Yeah, no, it is it is an interesting question. Because, you know, in some ways, when you look at airlines like British Airways, and, of course, they've, they've done a lot in the last yeah. five to ten years to make themselves more profitable. But... You know, look at this gold mine that they have with all these Heathrow slots. Yeah. You know, which, I, I mean, it's... Which it, may not be quite so many going forward. I don't know if you saw the news today, I think, actually. Uh, the UK competition committee, whatever their version of the DOT is that sort of, or not DOT, whatever would antitrust people, yeah. review mm-hmm. people here, uh, is talking about the BAAA uh, alliance and how they now have to review it because of the efforts to include Aer Lingus in the transatlantic joint venture and JetBlue is going to be happy as hell because JetBlue has been petitioning for uh, relief slots, trying to get some divested slots out of Heathrow. They wanted Delta Virgin Atlantic yeah. to have to divest slots and the competition bureau said no, but now Heathrow, now uh, AABA seems like their opportunity, especially as they add Aer Lingus in. So, well, JetBlue is definitely the most exciting potential news for Heathrow, but when, when are they, so remind me again, because a I, year from now, spring 2021, spring 2021. And do we know, do we have any idea or what's our best guess on what airport it'll be and what aircraft? So the aircraft we know, it's a 321 LR. Um, it's going to be a new version of Mint, uh, which 
I've seen some. They should call it spearmint. No. No. <laughs> Would we paint the planes yellow if we did that? Wasn't that that Delta subsidiary that, uh, what was the Del- song? Song, yeah. Yeah, very different, very different. Um, but that is what launched, I mean, was it, Song was a response to the initial JetBlue launch, so there's that. Right. Um, I thought Song was sort of cool, actually. You're weird. Uh, it was fine. Uh, the, <laughs> well, you know, someone this week wrote about... Fair, that was actually the original Delta, we're going to make sure we have IFE at every seat. Yeah. And now, 20-odd years later, Delta has doubled and tripled down on, we're going to have IFE at every seat. You know, I got a little bit, I, I'm very, uh, I'm very vain about age. And I think somebody on TPG wrote a review this week of, uh, Eastern Airlines. Yeah. And it was like, yeah. And somebody from TPG was talking about Eastern when they flew on Eastern then. But that was, you know, I mean, I was, you know, that was before I wasn't 1991. I wasn't alive yet. And I'm like, oh my, my goodness. You know, and I thought yeah. Eastern, Eastern was an amazing, Airline, I'm sorry if I go off on a tangent, but you know, my favorite thing is the name of their lounges because it was the Ionosphere Club. Yeah. Like, you'll never have a cooler name than the Ionosphere Club, but Eastern, Eastern was such a cool, was such a cool yeah. airline. They were just cool. Like, they, they did like great stuff. They were very premium. Yeah. It was very sad to see them go. Yeah. And Pan Am. But. Yeah, well, you can thank Frank Lorenzo for half of that. Um, yeah, yeah. And then you can thank, uh, Carl Icahn for uh, TWA and everything. Um, <laughs> I want to switch topics back to something because you, you, you said that you weren't that opinionated on a lot of these things despite offering lots of opinions. So I want to talk about things you are opinionated about. Okay. Um, I'm not Vegas. opinionated at all. No, well, mostly no. Las Vegas. Okay. Um, I know you're going uh, next week, a uh, little party flight. Um, That's right. There, there's still time. There are still seats available on BA275 next Friday. Uh, <laughs> if you're crazy enough to join them, there will be a party. We're, we're, we've been sourcing disco balls that can fit into USB. USB. So you followed that, right? That's, uh, no, I'm just guessing and playing along <laughs> and I'm worried. Uh, I shouldn't be like worried nor surprised that there is such a thing as a USB disco ball, but here we are. Yeah. Um, what's, I know you're going for work also. Um, but is there anything special, fun or exciting that's happened in Vegas in the last few weeks that's worth knowing? Funning, exciting is the most exciting thing that's happening this year is there is the first new casino that's going to be opening huh? ground up from downtown. Uh, that has there has not been a new casino built in downtown in a lot of years. Downtown uh, Fremont Street area, yeah. Okay. And the guys, uh, the Stevens brothers, who own the D and the Golden Gate, have broke ground on a new comu- uh, new casino called Circa Las Vegas. Okay. Uh, actually, on Travels Work, we wrote about this. Okay. It's totally on time and on budget, and they've corrected Garage Mahal to <laughs> another building. Yes, they called the garage, but it is—it's really a. Is this the thing I saw where they put the overpass in? Is that what I saw like this past week? There was news that like an overpass went in one day. Yeah, like, that oh. might have been. I mean, but but the cool thing about it is it's a new casino. It's downtown. It's it's designed more like a strip property downtown it's really cool it's going to have 777 rooms and suites uh it has a really great sports book they've got really into the sports book thing with their own circus sports book which people who don't follow sports stuff that much it's not so a lot of companies like william hill run sports books for certain casinos but it's it's really quite exciting and they have a great promo video for it but it's it's sort of like a throwback to old vegas yeah but a new casino downtown so and the, clean and fresh but still and still downtown and people who embrace gamblers and it's it's really really good stuff so that is well, coming that is happening this year i mean casino openings 
you get a little jaded sometimes with casino openings, but I think this this is really this is really a big deal. It's an extremely big deal for downtown. I mean, there's been a lot of transformation downtown in Vegas, and one of the biggest things that that makes people sad about Vegas is devaluation and yeah. like the big court, like everything's MGM and Caesars, and this is an independent. Casino uh, run by, you know, casino operators, you know, where they're around like Derek Stevens hangs out at the end of the bar at the D talking to customers, you know, these they make deals in the sports book for people like they'll give people higher, you know, betting lines, they'll change, you know, betting limits, they'll do it, you know, the way Vegas used to be. So I think Circa, you know, and it's a great name. I I think that's going to be the most exciting thing that's going to happen in Vegas in a while, especially to people who have become a little jaded with the very corporate structure of Vegas. But people still seem to love Vegas. Yeah. So, I mean, and BA flies there on nice ancient 747. So, that's a good thing. (laughs) Well, so it's funny. One of the things you sort of said there is it sounds like it's going to be a casino for gamblers versus what many of the other strip properties have become, which is entertainment hubs that sort of happen to have a casino attached. Yeah. Well, I mean, the whole game with... You know, I think everyone wants to see how far they can push the customers. You know, they'll make the games worse. They'll make the comps worse. They'll add resort fees. And yet they still seem to get a certain, they still seem yeah. to get the customers. They keep coming back. Sort of like what we were talking about the executive platinum. You know, they, they raised the spend and now what is it? 15,000 a year and a guy gets to 13,800 and says, I need to spend and I need to do it. Like obviously the right thing to do if you want to revolt <laughs> against the devaluations say screw you i'm not you know i'm not going to buy into your spend thing for for this i'm going to become a free agent and not do it but people don't seem to do that you know and it's it's interesting the way that is i mean i think a lot of like mgm's hired a lot of people who are more into this like experiential kind of entertainment thing and we'll see if it works i mean my my main gripe with vegas is that they don't know how to balance you know when you have people who have status or gamble a certain amount, you should differentiate a little bit. It doesn't, it doesn't hurt you to do it. I mean, a loyalty, the difference between casino loyalty and travel loyalty, at the end of the day, the casino is going to win on these games. You know, I mean, because they are, you know, it's just, it's just the way, it's just the way it works. So why not give back a little bit more? And why, you know, I'm, I sort of accept, I don't complain about things like resort mm-hmm. fees. I just see that that's the way the market is going. But you have the opportunity, just like with airlines, with waiving baggage fees and other kinds of things for elite travelers, you have the opportunity to waive some of these fees and make people happy for, you know, very little cost. And I think you'll make it back. And I think sometimes they just don't, they just can't differentiate the customers. And I think that's, that's unfortunate because I I think they could be more profitable if they did that. Yeah. Um. No, that's interesting. There was another story I seen. I think I read it on Travels, or um, but maybe not, or from one of your tweets about the woman who wrote like the book on getting comps in Vegas, deciding to quit. That was Jean Scott, and she was at the last uh, at the last uh, Zork Fest. Well, I mean, part of it, right? The comment I read from her is like it's a little bit of what you said. Now is like they don't know who, like they don't know how to give out benefits anymore. The casinos don't care about the gamblers anymore. Kind of idea. 
Yeah, and and that's sort of that's sort of true. I mean, it's uh, the hustle is not as much fun as it used to be. Yeah, and I, I think we could say that with a lot of a lot of a lot of things in life. Now, now to be true about it, Jean Scott came to Las Vegas like when she was sixty, and she's now in her eighties yeah. with her husband. So I mean, it's you know, but I think you know that also happened. I don't follow it very closely, but at the locals' casinos in Vegas, they just. Everything's become less generous, especially for the smart players, the players who play the good video poker machines, you know, where they used to be able, they, they used to be able to get more benefits and they just kept, you know, they just keep squeezing you. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think the, the thing with the casinos a lot of times is they, they put far much, far more attention into being beat than just, than just accepting the percentage of people who are going to hustle them. But realize that if they do decent marketing and they do decent loyalty, they're going to get more business in the end. And I guess we can argue this in the airline side too. You know, the people who, you know, are exceptional mileage runners who, who use partner tickets and do other $1, things. $1,200 EXPs. Yeah, exactly. They're, they're really outliers. So is it really worth changing? You know, you have to balance. Are you going to change your program to prevent these people or are you just going to, or are you just going to deal with it? You know, it's sort of like one of the the simplest examples in casinos are things like like worrying about card counters. You know, at the end of the day, you know, a blackjack card counter he has a he has a, if he gets an edge, the edge is only a few percentage points, which doesn't guarantee that he's going to win anyway. So you will take precautions to prevent this kind of stuff that might mean shuffling. You know, that might mean on a six deck shoe cutting out close to two decks. But if you look at it in the long run, if you look in the data in the long run, that means that your dealers are spending less time dealing hands and either more time shuffling or replacing cards. So if you slow down the game, if you slow down the games, you know, the only way the house edge, you know, the, the whatever the edge, the casino has the advantage. So the faster the games move, they're realizing that advantage. So if you're going to do things that are precautionary to slow down the games, you're probably going to make more less money, you know, trying to stop the few people who yeah. are taking advantage of you. So is it worth trying to alter your procedures for the people who are taking advantage of you? And this is the same thing at craps too. There's a position in the middle of the table called the boxman. And he's a guy who just sits there and there's a dealer to the left, dealer to the right, a dealer with the stick. That's right. the one with the stick. Pretty genius there. <laughs> so the box person, when you throw in your money, he just hands, handles the financials and he deals with the other dealers. So you have a craps game going. You've got, you know, seven people on one side, seven people on the other side. Someone else buys in, throws down $5,000. If you have a boxman, that's fine. 5000 goes in the middle of the table. Boxman verifies the $5,000, can say you can pay this table. Well, play, give the player the chips right. or book the bets that he has. Well, if you eliminate the boxman, then the supervisors who manage three, four, five tables have to be the ones to say, okay, send the money. Well, that guy's at another table now. Someone's thrown down money. Now everything stopped. You know, so the game isn't continuing. Whereas when the box man's there, the game can continue. The dice can keep moving. Everything's going on. Yeah. He's doing the money. So the question becomes, you've now, you've eliminated a position to save money, but you're slowing down the game. So does that really make sense yeah. for the casino? So those are the kind of things where I think people haven't really thought about it yeah. as well as they should. So at Casino Nepal in Kathmandu, you actually don't drop your cash off at the table. You buy chips at the cage where you go cash them in later. But can you do cash at the table? No, I tried. I was sent to the cage. That's intriguing. I mean, some casinos, I mean... I, I get it from a not having to manage cash on the floor perspective. 
right? There's a whole lot of risk mitigation by only having cash come in and out of the cage. You don't have to worry about fraud. You don't have to worry about counterfeit, like all of those. Well, that's true because you put, you put cash on the table. You know, basically the dealer has to be able to verify that the cash is legitimate, the legitimate cash. And maybe there, or there could be a scam where someone's coming up with fraudulent cash and the dealer drops it. Right. You know, in the box and gives you chips. Whereas at the cage, right. there someone can scan it. They've got the machines. They can do those things. Yeah, I'm thinking. You know, the thing that I'm curious about, and it's moving ahead, and I think I think we'll be there soon. Is is the ability to do you know like contactless transactions and stuff at the tables? Here, I'll tell you an interesting thing. I am skeptical so it, of that, given the interchange rates and the fact that someone's going to try to take a cut of that. Well, I've noticed a couple of things. Although, going back to what I just said, sorry, handling cash costs money. Yeah. Well, I've seen like in London at casinos, I've seen at Playboy Club them walk over with the chip reader like you have in a restaurant to a guy at the table and take his card and basically, you know, run it and and authorize authorize chips. Okay. Which which is interesting, which is interesting to me. Now, of course, you could restrict that kind of thing, you know, with debit or credit. I do think, you know, casinos are, you know, they're dancing around this kind of stuff because we know it's it's there. You know, there's this this thing with slot machines and and con- like the the concept that you could you, know, you could go to an ATM and get cash and put it into the slot machine. So why can't why not you just put make the, the card slot machine in? into an ATM? Yeah, and I think there's this this access thing, but it's very very interesting, you know, how that is, you know, could potentially could potentially go now that there's so much more like, you know, New Hampshire now has online sports betting. Yeah. Uh, now that so much more of this online stuff is happening, which is super nifty. Like when you play like when you're in New Jersey and you play online, you can choose to go pick up the money at the casino associated, you know, with it. I mean, I think there's a lot. I mean, I guess I love the technology stuff. I, I think it's great. I, I think there's no reason not to do it. I'm amazed at how much in casinos is paper oriented, like cre- casino credit. The vast majority of casino credit, you sign physical markers. So when you ask for casino credit, which is really post-dated checks. So right. casino credit, this is a big misconception. Casino credit isn't casino credit. Really, you're signing a post-dated check. Uh, so you're not, it's not really credit. And in Nevada, you know, usually they give you 30 days, they'll give you more days. New Jersey's 45 days, up to a certain amount, whatever, whatever, whatever. But you basically sign it like a paper check. Uh, some casinos now are doing a situation where they, they bring a terminal and you can put a pin in and you can authorize the, the marker credit. And then they do an ACH debit, uh, for you. And I, and I thought that was like the most brilliant, smartest thing in the world. I'm like, this is awesome. But the, when you do the paper checks, they have to present. So they deposit it. So they literally, it's like you're signing a check. And then like the 45 days later, they deposit it and it, it clears your account. You know, it hits your account. Until one casino where I had a marker with and I did an electronic marker. And it didn't happen to me personally, but it was like the scariest phone call. You never want to call a phone call from a casino where they say like, please, like I'm calling from this casino, casino credit, please call me. I'm like, mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so I called they said, we had a problem and we like double... Double ACH'd all the, the, a bunch of the markers for that day. And we're really sorry. And if we overdrew your account or we did this, we'll make good at it. And I'm like, shit, I thought this technology stuff was good until, until, until I realized that could happen. Whereas with the old manual paper system, yeah, you can't, they're depositing a paper check. There's no way they could double send it. it. Yeah. You know, you don't have two of them. So, so my whole opinion of thinking the technology was great totally changed. Yeah. All right. That's fair. Um, we're getting on in time here, so I think I got one parting shot uh, question. 
Best lounge at Heathrow T3. <laughs> oh. <laughs> is anyone really interested in that? And I apologize to our listeners. This is a little bit of an inside joke because this question comes up like three times a week um, in various online fora. But it, it's a legitimate question because... And I will say best one world lounge, uh, because there are several to choose from. Basically, it's British Airways, Cathay, and American. And Qantas. And Qantas all have lounges in T3, and it's, uh, each has its own pros and cons. Yes. And the overriding opinion is Cathay. Yeah. I used Cathay my last trip through. I don't remember where I was going or why I was there now that I think about it, but I used the Cathay lounge. Um, and it was nice. The American lounge has pretty good food though. Yeah, I mean, most people, and I think the American Lounge is actually about to have a, a refresh, or okay. it didn't recently. I mean, I mean, most people really prefer the Cathay Lounge. I mean, some people like, you know, the difference is like the Qantas Lounge is, uh, you know, Cathay, I mean, I think part of it has to do with your, if you're One World Emerald or not. Okay. Because Cathay first side, you know, wins, but Qantas doesn't have a first a That's first all just side. business. Yeah, and they have a really good gin bar. And yeah, and they have like for the Qantas Platinums and for Qantas First People, they actually have a secret menu of oh. some alcoholic beverages and champagne that you can get. And I think if you ask nicely, you can get it too. So I think there's, it might be more compelling if you're comparing the business class side of Cafe to Qantas, that might be more, if you don't have access to yeah. the first side. Now, you said One World, so I'm I'm just going to, because I, can't, I just got to say gonna throw, one. Are you going to throw the Virgin upper, the Clubhouse yeah, at me? I, I think still think the clubhouse is, is. It has been probably more than ten years now, but I got to say that twice I went, I didn't love it. And I know that makes me weird, but I didn't love it. I think the you know I think the problem in, in Heathrow is is the lack of the ability to have a cigar in a lounge. I think that that does it for you. That has not been my problem. No, that wasn't. No. I, I understand how that could be a problem, but it's not my problem. Yeah, but I, I think I, I think pretty much so, Cathay. But I don't really like T3 that much. I mean, yeah. I, I really prefer, I mean, even with the fast track, I still think first, the best thing that British Airways has done in the last couple of years is first wing at T5 because it solves, it truly, it truly solves a problem, like a flow. I mean, for, yeah. I'm really into flow. And to me, the fact that the security, you know, the private security channel flows directly into the lounge is great. Yeah, you've got upper class wing, you've got fast track at T3, but none of them flow into the lounge. They drop you into the duty free and all the other areas that you need to walk through. And then you have to find your way to the lounge. And, you know, first wing is extremely convenient. I keep thinking if a U.S. airport could do that. That would be, would that be compelling? Like, this is what's interesting. British Airways got close in T7 where they had that side security area that didn't drop you right into the lounge, but like at the top of the ramp, the Concord room doors were just to the left. But what, but what if a hub, like imagine if, okay, imagine if Delta set up uh, a queue at Atlanta that, that went straight into a sky club. Like, I think that would be like extremely forward thinking and extremely cool for cub. I mean, it would probably sell. Think about if U.S. domestic, you have to choose it as a diamond benefit yeah. for, for Sky Club or buy it. I mean, I think that could cause people to buy. You know, I guess it's a little bit different because you can't like the first wing is for One World Emerald and for those flying BA first. It's not because you bought the lounge, but they could do something cool like that with that Sky Club. If you have Sky Club membership. 
you basically can use this flow that brings you right into the lounge. Now, of course, I understand the logistics of Atlanta, like the multiple concourses and all that kind of stuff. But I still, I still think it could. Yeah, I, I would love has multiple to concourses too. T five does. Yeah. Well, I always tell people that T five A, B, and C, and B has a really decent lounge, which is never too crowded in a Alma spot. And C was supposed to have a lounge. Yeah. And might get one one day, but uh, they've got crap for concessions. Otherwise, though. Yeah, but there's, I there's nothing in those terminals as concessions as a regular passenger. I've been like on a short connection and want to grab a snack to have halfway through my flight because I know the meal isn't going to be enough, and there's nothing. It's a terrible experience. I you honestly would. said I have. I mean, I know there's Starbucks, <laughs> and uh, one of the, one time I did, I got a muffin at Starbucks and had that as my mid meal snack. It was terrible. I mean, not not that the muffin was bad, just it's the wrong amount of food in the wrong. Well, that's BA encouraging you to do a Club Europe upgrade. Yeah, because well, as bad as as everyone complains about Club Europe, you still get a meal on a forty two minute flight. Yeah, <laughs> I mean that's yeah. A, this was unfortunately for my Heathrow JFK flights, but yeah. Anyway, um, yeah, I. So I want to see a U.S. carrier do that. I want to see a flow directly to a lounge. Okay. I, I I think that would really I'll I really I, I would really sh- shake up the game. Do that at let let United do that directly into Polaris. That that's the probably the closest I can come up with it. The flagship flow at T8 isn't bad because you walk out of security and then right you know, the elevator to go upstairs for the flagship lounge is right in front of you. It's probably the closest to what you'll get at JFK. Yeah, but you realize when you have the separate security flow for the lounge. Except in extreme circumstances, you don't have very few people in a security. Like, that's why first wing. Yeah. I mean, okay. I always get on people on first wing, but sometimes people take a picture and say, Oh, look at the line at first wing. And and I'm like, okay, how long did it take you to really get through security at first wing? It took me 12 minutes. I'm like, okay. Yeah. So it regularly takes four and it took you 12 and it still drops you right into the lounge, you know? Also, the problem, also the issue there is the credential check because you've checked, you know, your credentials are checked. You go through security and you're immediately in lounge. You don't need to get to another person waiting in another queue to say, yeah, I'm allowed to be in this lounge because if you're allowed through that right. security, you're allowed That's in the lounge. So I think, I, I, I just think from a flow perspective. No, that, that is a really interesting idea. And I know, uh, Turkish does it in Istanbul also. They definitely did it at the old airport. I believe they did, they, they still do it at the new one. Um, maybe. In Bangkok, Thai does it, but probably not. I know there are some weird access rules for their lounge, or access means to the lounge just there. But I, I, rem- I did it in Istanbul, so I know it can be done there too, or could be at the old one. So, any hoodle. Um, we've been rambling long enough, so I'm going to cut us off. Uh, thank you, as always, both for the delicious cognac, as well as for joining us with your opinions and thoughts. Um, we can find you at Travelzork. At Travelzork, everywhere, on Twitter, on Insta, and Travelzork.com. There you go. Uh, and for our listeners, you can also find Dots, Lines, and Destination at Dots, Lines on Twitter. You can find us at more.smorelines.com. You can find us on Patreon. And I'd say to get copies of the podcast early, but we're recording this late on Thursday, and this one's going to be late. So that's probably a bad thing to sell right now. <laughs> um, and many other places podcasts can be found. So that's it. Have a great trip.